Welcome, Legionaries, to episode 14 of Legion Cast. This is Hobby Roundtable 5. We've got four awesome segments for you today, and joining me are the usual suspects. Uh, my co-host Brandon, my brother Maniple, and our friend Paul. We're going to be talking about the GW Intern Hour. We're going to be talking some Fulgrim's Quest, where we talk about our painting techniques. We're going to be talking a new segment called Rights of Battle, where we talk about strategies that work for us. And Maniple has another Plundering the Vault segment for us, where he talks about Battlefleet Gothic. What's up, Brandon? Hello, my Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me. I didn't prepare anything funny to say this time. Welcome to Legion Cast. Uh, great to be here, everybody. Maniple, Paul, thanks for joining the show again. Uh, let's go around the horn here real quick. What are we drinking, everybody? Greetings, fellow Longbeards. If you're old enough, you might need to start writing down your grudges in case you forget them. I'm drinking a little Maker's Mark. Yeah, Paul back again. Thanks for having me. Uh, drinking. It uh, looks like I'm drinking soda again. Yeah, I picked up a Sam Adams variety pack on my way home uh, today. It was, it was great. It's great so far. I love these. Awesome. Manipul, I want you to know you don't have to be getting older to forget your grudges. Some of us just have a lot of them. So we started writing them down a while ago. Oh, very good. All right. Well, should we jump straight in here? Because I got a lot to talk about in the GW intern hour, particularly about, you know what? I'm just going to wait until we get there because I'm, I'm, I'm hot. I'm angry right now. There's been some big news that came out. Well, I don't know if it's big news, but it's certainly news that's pissing people off. And GW's taken a lot of heat for the new price increase flyer that went out. Uh, I don't know. I'm surprised it took this long for a price increase. With everything going up around the world, I don't know, 6%. You're surprised it took one year almost to the day? They've done this every year for the past five years. So you're surprised? No, I'm not surprised, but I am annoyed. All right. Do tell. I'm I'm getting to the point, and I I want to pose this question to, to all of you. At what point, and I understand, I understand that this is a luxury hobby. I understand that it's a hobby. I understand that it's not essential for me to pay for this at all, but I'm just curious for, you know, around the panel here. At what point do you just, lo- you look at a pack of Space Marines and go, that's too expensive for me. I'm not buying that. I think in a, in a sense, I'm already there. I used to be the guy who, every time I went into a game shop, I would just buy something just to support the shop. But now I'm a lot more cautious about what I'm picking up. I will actually write an army list and decide what units I want to have. And then I'll kind of look around for deals or I'll like one of my local shops usually offers a 15% discount on the big boxes. So if I see something that I can get for a deal that way, I'll, I'll wait and and get that one rather than just kind of willy nilly buying a bunch of stuff. Uh, so that has already changed the way I buy GW. Yeah, I've definitely been that way as well. Uh, Brandon will remember this, but at one point I had 6,000 points of dark angels I think I had like 65 Deathwing Terminators and that army I got specifically because I just had the money and people kept wanting to split the Dark Vengeance box and then I just bought Terminators and I had this massive army that I barely ever played. Um, And I've had stuff like that come up in the past couple of years where they're like, oh, you know, we could go halvesies on this box or, you know there's some new kit that looks good and I have to pass on them because I know that to get invested in those armies, it's not going to cost the kind of spare change that it used to. I have to be much more 
what's the word focused on like building an actual army because I know that it's going to take a lot of money to get it on the table. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, I've put like a, a couple of 40k projects on hold because I don't think it's financially responsibility. And it's like I was telling Brandon the other day. I know where there's a box of Tartaros Terminators for sale uh, here in my area, and I could go buy them right now. But I don't think it's responsible right now because even though I can afford them, I just, you know, I'm not happy with uh, with the pricing currently. And uh, while I could afford it, it's just not something that I think I should be spending money on right now. So it's, I mean, the pricing has already affected how I how I hobby. So Brandon, in your mind, do you set yourself a hobby budget for a week or a month, like what you think you want to spend and you stick to it? Well, so I, you know, I kind of look at this and in the past, you know, a little bit kind of, um, I, I haven't been the most strict with what I spend. Um, I'm definitely a person that like, I get an idea in my mind and I get excited. And so I plan it out and I want to, you know, I want to do that. Um, you know, but I want to run some math past you guys here um so you know we talked about um our our black shields idea for our 500 point combat patrol right and we all talked about doing a shattered legion um as part of that we you know we talked off air about it and i pulled salamanders for that well i put together my uh my list idea for that which is pretty basic it's a 500 point list it's a legion champion 10 tactical marines and a rhino and a dreadnought. Nothing crazy, right? How much do you guys think that costs if I wanted to go buy that fresh? Oh, uh, 150? I mean, the tack marines are going to cost more than that. $170. Um, and that is going bare minimum cheap. So that is the the marines boxes for heresy. We all know they come in 20s. So I'm converting a centurion out of one of those extra 10 for that box. So if I add on an actual centurion, it's going to be another $30 on top of that. So it's $200 to get started. Now, the fastest and most efficient way to get started in Heresy is the Age of Darkness box set because you get about 1,500 points for and the rulebook for $300. And we know that's not going up. They already said starter sets are not going up. But I think, I got to be honest, we're fast approaching the point where that's the only good deal that you're getting. And the rest of them are just crap. You know, I, I I thought that 20 Marines for 80 bucks was a pretty good deal, especially when you look over at the 40K side where it's $60 for 10. But we're just, we're fast approaching the point where I'm going to have to look at it and say, I'm just going to stick with the toys I got. Yeah, there's a few things driving that too. In the early days of the hobby, a lot of your models were monopose and... You could move the arms up and down, but for the most part, they would only look good one way. And you didn't get many options in the box set. I will say that the new box sets do have a lot more options, a lot more bits and bobs and things for conversions. But on the the same hand, I think the models are harder to convert than they ever were before. Because you take away that monopose look, it's harder to do arm swaps and head swaps and takes a little more hobby into it. But like the, the tank you got for Christmas is a good example that that box came with most of the weapons you could use on it. You didn't have to then go buy a second kit to get the add-ons that you wanted. So that's probably driving the cost a little bit because the quality of the models is is high now. You will have to do that for your tactical support squads and your heavy support squads because you're not getting 
you have to buy a base tactical marine set and then you have to buy an add-on another add-on for what like 35 40 bucks yeah i think it's 42 or something for the the weapon upgrade sprues so about 120 bucks and you can get 20 marines with a variety of weapons yeah it's uh it's not cheap you know if you want to add a heavy support squad that's what you're looking at 120 dollars just to do that when I look at this from, you know, the perspective of a new player, like let's say I wanted to put that 500 point list together and I was brand new starting out there to me right now, if you are brand new starting out in Horus Heresy, the only option you have is the age of darkness box set. There's no other direction to go because the, the amount of, you know, I just showed you 500 points. This is a 3000 point game is the, is the regular size game. 500 points costs you $200 that's not rule books. The, the rule books are also $70 a piece. Well, and that's always been the problem with Heresy. 1.0 was the same way. When it came out, we were all excited because we'd been reading the books, thought it'd be cool. And then it was like, oh, Forge World for everything, 20 tactical marines and resin for $160. You know, and that was back when tax squads for 40K were still 40, 50 bucks. Like it was a massive like price increase just to get into the game that's why nobody played it well and let me be clear i'm talking about horus heresy because this is a horus heresy podcast this is across the board this is every single game they have you know if honestly for me the biggest offender on this is the middle earth game because you know we talked about this all the time the same warriors of Minas Tirith that were 25 dollars five years ago are 45 dollars and about to go up again what what's the method what's what's the logic there I remember that's why when you wanted to play it, I was like, I don't really want to rebuy an army that I got rid of for double the price for the same models. It was a, it took me a while to get convinced to even try it again, just because of the price increase. Yeah. This is just, this is an incredibly frustrating topic for me. I assume that the, the forge world prices are going up too. Yeah, I think they are. Yeah. I don't remember if they said that's, that's for, that's frustrating on my end because I think I talked about it in the last episode. I did did put together a bunch of resin models from Forge World a couple weeks ago, and I was appalled by the quality that I got. There was like trim falling off. Um, they were impo- I don't know. They just weren't fun to work with. Um, a bunch of pieces were bent and almost broken. I had to do a bunch of fixing on stuff, and I was just really disappointed with the quality from Forge World on that. Well, I think this whole thing is about economics, though. You know, if if that does push the demand down. Prices will decrease, but when prices are high, they put more money into de- development. And we get more stuff. Like I couldn't have imagined getting all this 30k stuff in plastic even you know, five years ago, but here we are. I'm sure that's a product of the increased demand and you know what they're able to sell. So yeah, I mean, I get that the price increase is frustrating, but like you started with Brandon, it is a luxury hobby. So how do you set your budget to something you can manage? That's the, that's the, well, it, you know, it's funny you, you talk about it that way. And that's, that's the counter argument, right? To what I'm saying. Well, let's look at what they're doing with all this money that they're making. They're running a 34% profit margin. That's public information. The only things they seem to care about is what their stock price is sitting at. So the 34% pro- uh, profit margin is insane. For context, the most successful and largest company in the world, Amazon, runs a 2% profit margin. So I I don't like the argument of their reinvesting in, you know, improving these models and all of that stuff, because I just, when I look at the numbers, it, 
seems like they're much more interested in stock prices and executive payouts. And like I just said, um, I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to humble brag or anything, but I live very comfortably just a sing, as a single guy. I live pretty comfortably. My argument to all of it is, is yes, I can afford this expensive hobby. However, I don't think it's financially responsible for anybody to be spending this much on little plastic men. And I, I still do it from time to time. I'm not going to tell anybody that I don't, I still spend too much money on this hobby, but it's, it, I don't think it's always responsible. So I know we've talked about this before, but like, you know, this isn't a new development. This happened before back like Oh nine to Oh 12. You know, I think that was six edition 40 K heresy 1.0 dropping. And they, they did like six point, uh, price increases during that time period. And a lot of people started to slough off from the game. I remember that was around the time that uh, games like War Machine started coming around. Infinity and Malifaux got really popular, and it was because there was this huge exodus from Games Workshop because nobody was willing to pay the prices anymore. And you could get a Malifaux box for 50 bucks, and everyone was like, let's try that. Yeah, and I was at the tail end of the last edition of, of Warhammer the- uh, yeah, that would have been 6th edition and 8th edition Fantasy and, Battles. Yeah, the Fantasy Battles came, and it was to the point where the model kits were getting expensive, but the main issue was they wanted you to play bigger and bigger and bigger battles. And finally, people just said, we we can't do it anymore, and that game wasn't making any money. So then you saw the turnaround to Sigmar, which, I as, I, as I'm aware, it's much smaller armies than those old square base um, Fantasy Battle games because that was a direct response to that competition. And like I was at a um, hobby store uh, a few months ago that had a kind of a, a bargain basement section and there were brand new starter kits for war machine that had never been opened going for like $8. And so we're kind of back to that point where I think GW put, would, should be looking over their shoulder. Cause if one of those games has a resurgence, like war machines coming into their new edition here pretty soon, that may pull off some of their, market share but we'll see they've proven to be very resilient that seems to be their response particularly you know on the sigmar and 40k end of things and i you know i try to plan my armies out just like everybody else does here one of the reasons that i'm taking a break from sigmar right now is that they're turning the rules over so fast you know they're putting out a general's handbook every six months it's the same thing with 40k i hope to god this doesn't happen in in horus heresy where they're flipping but they're i mean it's completely changing how you build your army it's fundamentally changing every six months is, you know, this cycle, the focus is all on infantry. The next cycle, the focus is on foot heroes. The next cycle, it's on cavalry, then monsters, you know, whatever. That's one of the, the big things that when we got into heresy that I was getting so appealed to was the fact that I can set the game down for a couple of months if I don't feel like playing and I can still come back to the same game. With 40K and Age Sigmar, you can't do that. Mandipole, you play a lot more 40K than I do. Um, would you say it's like that as well? Well, I've been finishing up my Orc army, and I'm actually to the point where I'm painting models that I, I bought years ago. They're actually not in the book anymore. So I found that there are, you know, that has certainly happened to me. I'm painting them because I'll just proxy them as something else. But, but yeah, uh, they're just not in the rules anymore. And the funny thing was, in those days when I bought that army, there were a lot of rules in their army books that they didn't make a model for even. So you, you, they were telling you play this and they weren't even making the model for it. 
So those little frustrations have been in there over the years. Uh, It's been interesting going back through this process of plundering the vaults because I realized that all those old games I liked were a single rule book you could pick up for $35 and it's still as good today pretty much as it was the day I bought it 15, 20 years ago. And so I think there's some wisdom in having maybe, but and this could be a discussion for another day, an agnostic rule system that is a little bit more fixed. So you have the models you like from anywhere you want and play the game you want to play, keep the rules super simple and just have fun with your buddies. But if GW is going to be pushing on following the competitive competitive game, you're going to keep having this turnover because the competitive cycle is so so churny. Yeah, and and kind of bring it back to the point that I wanted to make earlier and then I kind of went off on a bit of a tangent there, you know, on the, on the Sigmar and 40 K side, their solution to this, you know, they keep jacking up the price and people get annoyed and their solution seems to be, we're going to raise the points on everything. So you just have a smaller army to put on the table. And their method is it takes less to get you to 2000 points. You have to buy less things. You're also, you know, for, for those of us who, you know, that works for, for new players, those of us who already have these big armies, now, now we can't get them on the table anymore. You know, I can't, t- I can't take the things that I want to take because I have, I'm so constrained on points. Um, now, and again, I got, I understand that right now I'm sitting here trying to have my cake and eat it too. Um, but that's, it, it, it's, it's frustrating either way because I think, I think they're just, stepping over a point where you know again not to humble brag here i also do pretty well um you know i've been pretty blessed on the financial side of things in my life but i'm getting to the point where i'm like this is not worth paying for anymore you know i'm i get maybe one game of heresy a month if i'm lucky you know maybe one game of something else as well i i I don't want to do this chase the competitive thing. That's why I'm glad that heresy hasn't had that fast and furious rule set the way that other games have. Um, I would love to see like an, a miniatures agnostic type deal like BattleTech. I don't think games workshop will ever do that. They, especially after like the chapter house lawsuits with the models that or the, the rule sets for models they didn't make. I don't think that they're ever going to go back down that road. Well, and I think, Something to to note with Games Workshop is they don't tend to value a lot of the long-term players. You know, talking to like store managers, it's very clear that their business model is about converting new people into the hobby, trying to get them into it and sell starter sets. You can see that because they came out and they said, we're not raising the price on starter sets. Yeah. Who's that for? Yeah. I mean, and a, a part of that too is, you know, their demographic is really aiming for that single in their 20s disposable income kind of people. They know people past, you know, into their 30s with families and kids aren't going to be investing as much into the game as they used to. And they know that, you know, generally speaking, um, a lot of those people's because they've been playing for so long already have the models in the armies. You know, it's kind of like, Manipul was saying he has so many orcs from such a long time ago, they don't even exist anymore in the rules. So why would he ever go out and buy more orcs, you know, even if they come out with new sculpts? So they're not really aiming to please us long beards. They're looking to try to come out with brand new spanking stuff every quarter 
to lure new people into the store so they can sell those starter sets and make a profit margin. When it comes to long-term players, they kind of seem to keep us at a distance. You know, like I said, going to GW stores as a long-term player, their sort of mentality when they approach you is kind of like, yeah, yeah, buy what you want to buy, go play at home. Like the the table's here for the new people. So Brandon, would you say that that might then, or for all you guys, would that push you more in the realm of a, a playing a game like Titanicus that you have a, a fixed rule set for? You know, you, you're going to have those those first books. You don't need anything else. The models are great the way they are. What do you think? I think that's a big yes to a point because where where uh, the the constantly changing rule set like it, like we're seeing in 40k and Sigmar. Uh, it burns players like us out, at least Brandon and I, we get burned out on that. The nice thing about Heresy and Titanicus is because they're not doing that. And uh, the, the other side of the coin to that, however, is we have not gotten a new Titanicus model in like a, more than a year now. And for Heresy, we talked about it in the last episode where we've got vehicle fatigue. We're not getting plastic despoilers. We're not getting other plastic units. Uh, we just keep getting more and more tanks. So Titanicus is awesome. I love it. It's one of my favorite games. That being said, we're not getting new stuff for it. That kind of is a drag. Heresy, there is just, we're kind of stalling out on the, you know, kind of the input side of that where we're, we're maybe we're not getting beat over the head with world changes. We're also not getting new and helpful stuff. That's just how I feel. Yeah, um, real quick, I, I do want to wrap this segment up because we have a lot we want to talk about tonight. Um, we need to talk about the big elephant in the room as well. 3D printing is getting good. It's getting real good. And when I understand, we can, we can get into the IP, you know, the ethical side of things, but GW cannot continue to ignore the fact that I can print 10 Space Marines for 50 cents when they're selling them for 80. That That is absolutely the elephant in the room. And like Brandon said, we can get to the ethics of it, but it's a thing that GW is going to have to acknowledge sooner or later that independent people are going to f- get their hands on uh, the files, the STLs or whatever, and they're going to start printing their own models. And, you know, if, if we can't find plastic despoilers, by God, we'll make our own. I'm not saying I'll do that. I don't have a 3D printer. I'm I'm not in on that game yet. But it may come to a point where other people, like-minded people, are going to be doing that. Manipul or Paul, anything to add? No, I think we've uh, we've about covered it. We've got our rant out of the way for the night. Yeah, we've we've uh, now entered into the wide stream that is GW price increase rants. That is now in its 30th year. Congratulations, everybody. To be clear, everyone, we at Legion Cast do not condone IP theft. No, no, don't, no IP theft. That's a bad idea. Well, either way, that'll be a discussion for another time. Should we move on to the next segment? Yep. So let's uh, let's talk about our boy Fulgrim and his quest to find all things artistic and beautiful. And how that kind of got steered off into all things disgusting and nasty. No, we... uh. All of us here, I could safely say, are trying something new with our heresy army, something we've never done before as a painter or, you know, just from some from 
the hobby perspective. So we wanted to take some time, go through, talk about what you're doing that's new, what you think of it, and uh, and then kind of run us through your process as well. Paul, you want to kick us off here? There we go. Yeah, sure. I can uh, get us started off. So yeah, working with uh, Sons of Horus here. In terms of new techniques, uh, the big thing for me is trying different paint lines. You know, I think for a lot of Games Workshop hobbyists in particular, the Citadel paint line has kind of been the bread and butter that everyone's used. Um, that was certainly the way it was for me. A, a big part of that for me was when I first started the hobby, all the local hobby shops only carried Citadel paint at the time. So it, it kind of just became what I was used to, and I just worked with it, even if I knew there were other paints out there. I was like, well, there's no point trying to learn a new paint line. I've got Citadel handled. But yeah, within the past uh, couple of years, I've started to branch out um, and use stuff like Vallejo and Army Painter and that sort of thing. And I've uh, really enjoyed it. Um, Brandon's got me turned on to, uh, was it AK Interactive? Their paint line. Um, I just started that for Sons of Horus, and I, I gotta say the quality on it is really good. Um, so I'm definitely gonna have to look into that a bit more with other armies. Um, the other one that I'm really trying is Scale 75, or Scale Color. Uh, it's an ultra matte paint which gives you a lot of control over the shine on models, um, but it does have a pretty steep learning curve to make it look good, um, as opposed to like the standard satin paints. So that's the big thing I'm trying to figure out with these guys is how to get that to look the way I want it to. Yeah, I've uh, I've been doing this as well, um, not specifically with my heresy stuff, but just in general branching out into different kinds of paints. And that, uh, that's because... Citadel had been having a lot of issues with their supply chain, particularly in the paints department. They still are. You talk about price increases. You know, if they say, if they came out and said, we're going to jack up the price and we're going to invest it all into our supply chain, I would have been like, great, let's do it. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I'm glad you're liking the AK interactive. I think that stuff's awesome. Um, I've also, I've been doing the pro acryl Vallejo, all of that stuff. Um, I do want to get into scale color. I've heard it's really good. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, and to be clear, I also, I think Citadel is great paint. I think it's some excellent paint. I do wish they'd put it in dropper bottles, but you know, that's fine. And I do, I I would commend the Citadel paint side of the GW house and how well they have done in their painting tutorials in the sense of, you know, if I want to paint a salamander, they can tell me exactly what colors to get the box art. And there's not a bunch of crazy mixing or anything like that to do it. Um, I think that I, I think that you know on the paint line side of things that they have really knocked it out of the park, unlike any other set of paints that I have ever used. So uh, a couple things that are different just go around. Um, the previous place where I lived, I did not have a good painting station. The place where I'm living now, I got my paint set up, so I'm able to work a lot more efficiently. And I can kind of work any time. So the first thing I really focused on once I started my New Year's project was to really get good at batch painting. And so I'm really trying to focus on keeping models together that have the similar bits and bobs on them in the same place. Like with these orcs, for instance, some of them have a little um, hanger on the back of their off their belt that's on the left. 
some don't have that. Some have an armband, some don't. So I'm trying to group those batches by guys that look exactly the same. And then I'll go through and just do each bit very quickly, pop, 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 just in a row. And I'm and I my kind of magic number for how many models I want to do at once is 12. If I can do 12, I can usually get them done. If I start painting like at seven o'clock at night, put in about three hours, I get up very early. Uh, long beards don't have to sleep very much. And I put in another couple hours in the morning. I'll do all my base layers at night, get up and do all the washes in the morning. And then I, I've got 12 done. So that's kind of my, my I figured out my turnaround time on this. And as far as the technique, um, the, 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 the new GW washes, of course, they're not that new now. They've been out for a while, um, are very easy to work with. I used to always be an ink guy. I'd use ink on everything. And so you have to thin it down with water, then put in a drop of dish soap, mix it up so you can break the surface tension and then do your wash with that. The The new GW washes make things very easy. So if you haven't gotten into the wash game, just just get an Agrax Earthshade and a Nolan Oil. And that's really about all you need for almost anything. It, it really makes the stuff look great. Now on my Alpha Legion, it took me a long time to get into the contrast paints because again, I was like a... A base highlight shade high or base layer shade highlight guy, which is four steps. The contrast paints do just knock that down, and the other companies have kind of gone to that as well with a similar sort of product. And I think they look good on the line troopers, but when I've been using the contrast paints on the large blocks of armor panels for the tanks, I don't like as much how it looks. I'm going to try and go through another pass to see if that smooths it out. But on the big flat panels, I'm probably going to, some of those I'm going to cover up with a water slide transfer or something to make them look halfway decent. And um, I, I still have my airbrush stuff set up, but haven't gotten into that yet. But really it's been for me, because I've painted the same way for such a long time, just the sheer fact of trying something new and trusting the new process was hard, but I, I'm, I'm glad I did at this point. So I've really had a lot of fun with, the, I know I've already talked about the stippling technique I'm doing with my ultramarines. It's the base McCrag blue, and then I go over, I think with like a, uh, I stipple some Caldor blue on there, which is a very light uh, by comparison. And then I dumb it all down by doing a, a layer of the GW blue glaze, which uh, the, the contrasts are great, but they're glazes. That, like the contrast, like the Nuln oil, um, the the washes are awesome too, but the glazes are awesome as well. So that's something that I've had a lot of fun with. Um, I have really struggled to get into the contrast game. I have not found a good way to do it because uh, last year when I was painting my 40K Space Marines, I tried to do uh, red contrast and it kind of looked good, but it... it it doesn't layer in a way that I'm used to. So it looked almost marbled because of the, the, I did a, like a layer of grace here underneath it. So it all, it came out almost with a, a marbled look, which kind of looks tacky, but in a way kind of doesn't. I'm, I'm happy with it overall. It's just not what I expected it to be. So, well, I've had great luck with like kind of this traditional, uh, well, more traditional layering technique with the stippling and the glazes, that's been very successful to me. I just can't really wrap my head around the contrast because that's how I did my uh, Osidax Titans. They're all contrast and they're not, they're some of the models I'm the proudest of. I know I've said this before too. I'm very proud of them. They're not my best work though. 
That being said, I have been a Citadel purist for the longest time. Because of Brandon, I'm just now starting to get into the Vallejo stuff. And I really like the Vallejo metallic paints. They, they're great for me. I really like how they turn out. They're really easy to work with. There's not a whole lot of mixing involved. Yeah, that's that's about all I can say on Fulgrim's Quest. But the, the Ultramarines technique overall is only about four steps. So it's easy for me to, when I actually sit down and do it, it's easy for me to knock out a lot of them very quickly. Awesome. Yeah, um, I, for this, I, I went way outside of my normal box for for these guys. Um, I decided I wanted to do, I really wanted to go very grimdark with, uh, with these guys. And so the way I decided to do that was um, using the, uh, the AK Interactive Streaking Grime, which is oil paint. Now, I had never worked with oil paint before. I've heard horror stories about how it's gone very wrong for people. Um, so I was pretty intimidated by it um, starting out. But, man, I, I picked up three different streaking grimes. I got the regular streaking grime, the dark streaking grime, and then the rust streaks. That stuff is like magic. You know, I've heard people refer to Nuln Oil as liquid talent. Forget about it. Streaking grime is liquid talent. That stuff... I mean, I literally, for, for my guys, I put a base layer of paint down. I don't do a single highlight on any of my models. And then I, I hit them with a gloss varnish um, because that's something to help the oil paint. And then I throw the oil paint through the airbrush on there and start taking it off with the, the mineral spirit and the cotton bud. Things I've learned from that, one is that... Uh, Oil paint takes a long time to cure. So once I once I do this this process, I'm done with that model for at least a day. It's got to sit at like I'm talking a full 24 hours at least. And then the one of the other things I realized is that when you shoot oil paint through an airbrush, you have to be really 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 efficient with your cleaning or it just turns your airbrush into a giant thing of rubber. Um, so I had to have Paul help me out with that there quite a bit. Uh, you gotta be very thorough in the cleaning, but no, I've had a, I've had a blast. I've also started using pigment powders, um, which I think are, are, are really interesting. They, they do a lot of work on my basing and they help me tie my miniatures into the base. Um, I was actually on a, in a gilded server that we're a part of talking to somebody on there. I was like, you got to try pigment powders. They're excellent. You know, great stuff. Um, I pretty soon will be starting to work on some land raiders for my dark angels. And one of the things I'm really excited to try that I'm going to give a shot to is, uh, is chipping medium. So um, looking forward to seeing how that works. Uh, I've seen some people do some cool stuff with it, but uh, we'll see how it goes from there. So Trying these non-acrylic things, it's been a lot of fun for me. I'll just do a little um, aside here. Uh, a year or so ago, I got into the Gaslands game. And there's so many wonderful tutorials online about guys who have done weathering on cars. So you just take a little Matchbox car. And talk, uh, from our first section, we talked about pricing. We got Gaslands is a game you can get, it, get into for $3, as long as you have a rule book. Uh, you need three matchbox. Well, sorry, they're a dollar twenty-five now, but you know about four bucks. But the guys are w- what I learned 
by watching what those guys do is they're really good at stripping in preparation. So I remembered how important it was to prep minis, particularly if you're working with resin, you got to wash those and make sure you get all the release agent off. And like with your plastics, make sure you're carving off the, the mold lines or any flashing that's still there, that prep work. And then when they get into prep, uh, washing or prepping their cars, there was a lot of it into the initial base coat. Your base coat has a lot to do with the finished project. So they would start with sometimes like a rust red base coat, and then they would do different, like you said, chipping mediums. But one thing you can do is do a salt chip. You put you put the put some water on a brush and paint the area that you want to have be rusty. You put salt on that, and then you spray paint it with your top color. And then when it's all dry, then you go by, go off with a wet brush again and, and brush all the salt off. Then you have this really kind of broken, nasty, rusty finish underneath if your base coat was right. And so I don't know, I think looking at some of the work that Warwick did on his tank with all the mud, if I get into a Death Guard army, I may do some of the, that salt chipping on my Land Raiders and see how that looks. Uh, it's a bigger model than a matchbox car, but I think the effect would be even better at that scale. I only added that much mud to the Land Raider because I got tired of painting the tracks. Yeah, dirty it up. It hides hides all the ugly stuff underneath with more ugly. You love yeah, if, to you see it. if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. I think that pretty well wraps us up for Fulgrim's Quest. Anybody have anything they want to add here? Uh, the only thing would be the other thing I'm going to be working on is really good basing. I want to try some new basing techniques, but I'm not quite there yet. Basing is something that I have not put a lot of effort in up until. Well, I want to put more effort into, but I have not done it thus far. Uh, seeing a lot of the stuff, um, Brandon or Brandon and I are part of a pretty awesome gilded group. And there are a couple of guys on there that are doing awesome jobs with some of the stuff they put on there. In fact, one of them has me to the point where I want to start painting 40K Space Marines again. So uh, getting getting like into a really good basing game would be another awesome segment for us. All right. Well, I think we'll take a short break here, everyone. And then we can come back and get into our Rights of Battles segment where we can all talk about how we've all dunked on Warwick. everyone we're going to be jumping into a new segment called rights of battle where we talk about strategies or rules that do and don't work for us and it's it's going to be interesting because we're going to get a little insight into everybody's different strategies on kind of how we approach uh warfare in the 30 30 000th millennia so i want to talk about kind of something that uh, uh maybe a little bit of rules cheese that I really lean into that I feel like has earned me an objective or two. And those are going to be the kind of mechanics that let you re-roll or roll an additional wound. So what I'm specifically talking about is rend. So whenever you've got... Um, it's shred. Shred, you're sorry. You're shred. No, you're yep. good. Rending is totally different. <laughs> no, you're right. So shred on any of your tra- chain weapons has been incredibly useful. I think two points for chain uh, chain bayonet is a great deal, and you should always be running them 
if you even think there's a chance your tactical squad's going to get in a melee, which every game I've played, basically, they always have. Uh, Deflagurate has been another great one because for every wound that you deal, you deal an additional one. Are, That's are awesome. you talking about Deflagrate? Deflagrate? Sure, whatever. <laughs> Pronunciation you, tool. You, you say you say tomato, I say potato. Yeah, it's the same thing. Um, oh, the other one is also Exoshock because Exoshock, when you get a penetrating hit, you'll deal an additional one. So it's great for taking out vehicles. I want to. I put together a list of uh, the. This is kind of a theory list. The right of war. It's like the armored spear tip. I think where you're running, you can take a Sakarin as a HQ choice. So that gives you, I think it's a heavy eight uh, cannon on that thing that has Exoshock on like a six up, I believe. So every time you're kind of fishing for sixes, but on eight shots, it's kind of viable. And that, that mechanic is really interesting. So it's one that I want to try out in the future. As far as mechanics go that don't really work for me, I don't feel like I've... Uh, hold on. Tell me a little bit more about Shred, because you said when you get into close combat, Shred is always good because you're going to be doing these extra wounds. But what no, is the unit, right? It lets you re-roll a failed wound. Yes, you're getting more wounds at the end of the day. Okay, yeah. Right. What is the unit that you don't want to go up against with those with those guys? Like, what is the bane... To, to uh, well, any anything that has a higher toughness. So I would not want to get a tactical squad in with a dreadnought unless my sergeant has like a melt bomb or something. Um, but as far as like infantry to infantry, I think the the melee reroll is always good. I know um, uh, terminators would not be great, but I think that. At the end of the day, so long as I kill a couple of Terminators with a tactical squad and melee, I think I'm doing all right. And then with your Deflagrate guys, the ones who are doing a lot of shooting, what don't you want them to target or be targeted by? Well, I so one of the games that you and I played, you charged a Moritat straight up the field. He had a jump pack on and got into melee with them. And it was a while before I could get rid of him. So the thing with that is, you know, they, they just, you know, it's the, the old modicum of, uh, or the old motto of shoot the fighty stuff, fight the shooty stuff. Those shooting units, you don't want anywhere near a melee unit. So they need to be able to shoot anything before it gets to them. Okay. So then you were going into something that didn't work for you. So sorry to sidetrack you there. No, no, that's true. To suss that out a little bit more. Right. No, that's, that's a great point. But I think, uh, as far as strategies that don't work for me, I don't feel like I've gotten enough games in to really know what that is. I know I did struggle in melee, even though I had my chain bayonets, I struggled in melee against some of your uh, Alpha Legion veterans because they had the, the Venom daggers or whatever. Though Those were just vicious, I and I'm surprised that I held out as long as I did. I, to be fair, I was playing them wrong. They only get that initiative boost on the first round of combat. Oh, okay. So, I mean, it well, was still probably going to go my way, but, but that, yeah, I... You're not. You can't take the surprise every round. It's only the first round. Right. Okay. So uh, I know that um, something that I rely on in my list is kind of uh, more basic tactical troops. I don't. I tend to not put a lot of points into like my terminators or my just my regular tactical guys. I know the chain chain bayonets might seem a bit uh, extravagant. 
but that being said, I'm not putting, I generally don't put artificer armor on my sergeants. I probably should, but I don't. Um, being able to deal with like the veteran units is fairly difficult because generally with the way that the, the Logus Locatora, uh, Logus Locatora or whatever, my, my ultramarine right of war and Gilliman's buffs work. Um, I rely more on infantry than vehicles and dreadnoughts. So having a lot of kind of basic bitch tactical guys is kind of a, uh, I kind of stall out when I run into something that's a little tougher or a little, uh, with more wounds than say I'm running or better armor even. So that's, that's kind of where I stall out. Yeah. I would say that I think this, this game does a really good job of making your tactical Marines feel like they can get work done, especially with just that little chain bayonet upgrade and their shooting is good. And a lot of other different versions of 40 K I've played, it, it always felt like a tax. I've got to take a few tactical Marines Maybe they're good this edition, maybe not, but I'd rather just get the other stuff on the board. But I think they seem to do, uh, they do good work uh, for what they are. Right, especially with, um, because I really lean into that right of war, uh, they can get a plus one, I think a plus one attack, plus one strength, and plus one weapon skill in the same round if you stack up Gilliman's buff and the uh, right of war. So even though they're basic bitch tactical marines with chain bayonets, they're still really vicious, even up against something like Terminators or uh, regular veterans. So that's that's really something that's worked well for me. And I've talked a little bit about what stalls me out. So what about you, Brandon? What's been working for you? Yeah, so I'm actually, I want to use the same unit for both what's working for me and what hasn't. And that's the Inner Circle Knights Cenobium, the specialty Terminators for Dark Angels. Um, now first look at these guys they come with a tyrannic greatsword which can be upgraded to a thunder hammer for free so first look at these guys i was all about it and you know the the tyrannic greatsword it gets breaching five up murderous strike five up um so you're causing instant death on fives to wound um the other thing that they get is uh they, they have higher weapon skill than a lot of terminators um the the sergeant is weapon skill six so he's on on par with uh, like a Legion champion or a Praetor. And then the rest of the squad is weapon skill five. You throw Deathwing on them, and with those swords, they get plus one to hit. So it's like having weapon skill seven and weapon skill six on the entire squad. So I looked at these guys, and I was like, these guys can take down anything they get into combat with. And the other thing is that they get these orders of the Hecatonistica. Um, say that five times fast. But uh, they, so they get basically at army selection, they get to pick a special rule. And the one that I was taking initially all the time was, uh, it's called Slayers of Kings, which was, and I'll read it here for you. You can re-roll failed hit rolls of one when engaged in combat with a model that has a weapon skill of five or higher, or, or in a challenge with um, any model that has a weapon skill of five or higher. So I, I looked at these guys. I'm like, well, they can take, they're, they're taking down specialty units and specialty terminators. They're going to go toe to toe. Well, Paul came over to my house and said, all right, here's my five Chesterian at their initiative one against your, uh, your inner circle knights that are at initiative at initiative four. Let's go. And I was like, I got this. Those Jesteran rinsed me. They 
destroyed me. I was like, this unit is garbage. What the hell happened? And here's what happened was that murderous strike and breaching on the five up. Well, it turns out to do that, you have to roll a five up, which is harder than it sounds, <laughs> especially for me. So I, and I kept, you know, I'd go online and I'd talk to people and I kept hearing, they're like, you know, inner circle knights are the best terminators in the game. People would be like, bar none, hands down best terminators of any legion and i'm like i'm just not seeing it what am i missing here well then i started looking at some of the different orders of the hecatonistica there and i realized you know what's a really powerful thing in the game right now dreadnoughts dreadnoughts are absolutely filthy i think everybody here agrees so with one little change which was to change their paladin order to the hunters of beasts which is, this model may re-roll a failed wound roll of one when engaged in combat with any uh, unit that includes one or more models of toughness five. Or it can re-roll all failed to wound rolls if the target is toughness six or higher. So what did I do? I took my squad that I had kitted out with three tyrannic greatswords and two thunder hammers, and I threw them into uh, Paul's Dreadnought. And that Dreadnought got picked up in one round of combat. Uh, it was just absolutely nasty. Rerolling so that I could fish for those fives. All of those fives now cause D3 wounds to that Dreadnought. It, they just took it right off the table. So that's kind of my, my double-sided right of battle here. Is these guys can... if I think when you first look at them, you can get trapped into they should be fighting other you know big tough units of terminators and stuff like that honestly god in that situation i would actually take lightning claw cataphracty over these guys um with all that shred uh but i i do not think there is anything better for taking down dreadnoughts in the game yeah on mine i fell into a similar trap because i had alpharius and his and five learning and terminators and thought, well, okay, got to throw these guys against the toughest thing in Warwick's army, which was Gulliman and his Cataphracty. And his Cataphracty had, guess what? Lightning Claws. And it wasn't until I got in the middle of the game where I realized, hey, these Lernians are really good because they get a preferred enemy. They got whatever Alpharius has given them. And they got these big axes. But the axes are unwieldy, initiative one. And so uh, I was ready to go toe-to-toe with the big boy and... Of course, Warwick made some joke about how, you know, this didn't go well in the lore either. And I'm like, oh, okay, all right. And I proceeded to get just shredded by these 10 cataphracti, which, uh, which, and I'm like, okay, well, I had finally had one Terminator left at the end. Oh, guess what? He's hitting on, you know, twos, but I only had one guy left. And so I just, the math just wasn't there. So you do have to really pay attention to when you have a good rule, your target. What are you going after? And what is this guy going to be good for? If I'd sent that same unit up against something a little softer, uh, or even with uh, Alpharius with his pike, with his pike, which is armor bane, I think armor bane. Maybe he could have taken out a vehicle or a dreadnought or something like that. But no, that I picked probably the worst target of those cataphra- ten cataphracties. I think in one of our other games, you did throw them against a dreadnought, and you were able to destroy it in one round. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, and then when he when he blew up because of his shield, he killed one of your hands. Oh yeah, yeah, that's horrible. 
I mean, you kill his dreadnoughts when they explode. You, who knows what happens next? So the when we first went through and did our list reviews for each other, you guys had talked about how my list looked really dangerous on paper, and I think it, it still is. But I really had to learn how to, I have to learn how to use it because I've got that a fire raptor, but the freaking flyer rules where you have to make a reserve roll to bring him in just completely castrates that that unit because by the time he gets in, it might be round three or four when the game is already over. I think most of our games by the end of three, we knew who was going to win. And so the reserve rule for that flyer was tough, especially when you've got a guy with a Vox caster who can tell it to go somewhere else. Right. So I remember I was able to place that unit and facing matters in in heresy because he's got the forward facing auto cannons. I just pointed it the other way and he wasn't able to shoot at me. Yeah. So I had to spend a whole turn turning around, but by then the game was over. So the, and the other thing was the, I could deep strike a, a tank. So I deep struck a, a Kratos. I don't know. I don't know if I ever deep struck him, but even then you got to, well, you got to make sure that he's going to be where you want him because he would have been really handy the first round or two of the game. But if I'm winning on a reserve roll, yeah, okay, he's right where I want him. But by then, the unit I was going to kill is long gone or has already done its its work. So the the deep strike or the some of that stuff, I think it really, I'm starting with a negative first, has not really been working for me. On the other side, I know that if I can get my headhunters and my uh, exodus to infiltrate or scout or kind of get where I want them, they can be very effective. I haven't really played enough. We make jokes about the dice, but I haven't made it enough games to actually get, get its worth. So for me, what I'm trying to fish for is getting those units right where they're supposed to be in order to get that alpha strike off. But the problem is that we can get screwed if the opponent seizes initiative. So I've got my guy in a great place where he can do some damage, and I think I'm going to have first turn, but then the opponent seizes and those guys are, are really in, in threat range. Likewise, if I don't have initiative, I might hide them in a building and then they lose a, a round of combat. So I think those are very strong tactics, but I usually make the mistake of buying an army that is smarter than I am. One of my 40k armies is a gene stealer cults, which I love the idea of it, but I have not cracked the code on that army. I cannot get them where I want them at the right time for these skillful ambushes, and I just need to think more about the game to get there. I remember having a similar interaction like that with you when we were getting into Malifaux, where you uh, you couldn't figure out how to run Pandora and all her spirits or whatever that, that went with her until one of the guys at my hobby shop told you, oh no, it's the Synergy Army, you gotta use them like this, this, and this. And you're like, Phew. and after that, like it, it all clicked together for you. So I think as soon as you crack that code, you're going to be uh, a force to be reckoned with. Um, and you've, you certainly put up a great fight thus far, but I think it just takes a little more time. Even, even me kind of uh, finding what, what really meshes well with this army. Uh, it, it's going to take a lot more practice for us. Well, you can always, uh, if you get tired of trying to crack the code, there's always world eaters. They know what they do, and they love doing it. And I respect that. Yeah, they love getting hit at weapon skill three. Yeah, so I think that those... One thing I also want to mention real quick is that I think that the my army has access to a lot of blind. They get, you think you get access to blind grenades, if I'm not mistaken. And I was playing a game of 40K against 
my buddy Jason's Imperial Fists. And he had brought two Thunderfire cannons. And he was just using the Thunderfire cannons to shoot with. The shooting was terrible. I said, well, what else can they do? Because these things used to be awesome. Well, there was some stratagem that let them use a stratagem and they would shoot this Earthshaker round or something that reduced your speed and your weapon skill when you when you moved. And he says, ah, oh, that seems really weak. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to shoot. But for one stratagem point, he could have shut down Gazcool, who I was rolling up the middle of the board with. And Gazcool literally took apart half of his army by himself. But if he'd been able to hit him with that, with those movement characteristics, slow him down, keep him in the backfield another round, he, it would have been a much different game. So I think using stuff like the terrain and blind and those other things that sometimes get overlooked can really make the game very, can swing back in your favor and have the game played where you want it as opposed to where the opponent wants it. AP, what do you think? Yeah. Um, well, in terms of the few games that I've been playing, I'd say the thing that's worked for me the most, um, probably the MVP of every army I've ran has been Apothecaries, uh, especially with Heresy, where it tends to skew towards a lot of elite stuff on the table. It's really easy for the points on individual squads to get out of hand. And so anything you can do to keep models on the table is really going to uh, up your performance on the game. And that is it a five up from Apothecaries for Feel No Pain? Or is it a six up? I, I think it's a five up. But yeah, that, that extra save after save is just really helpful, um, especially as a Sons of Horus player. When you're talking elites, they are the elite of the elite. Those Justarian you know, going against Brandon. Yeah, they completely rinsed him in combat. They also probably cost twice what he paid for his. A lot of the games we've played, actually, the issue I've been having is we'll get into trades where, like, veterans going against tactical marines, and I take half his squad and he kills three marines, and he still won on the points because my guys costed more. So having those apothecaries really helps <laughs> in that regard. Yeah, think out, you guys out there, think about how many games you've played have come down to one or two models mm-hmm. in the right place. And that Apothecary gives you that edge. Yeah. And it, it might only, maybe only make a couple saves during the game, but I guarantee he pays for himself in those edge situations. So it's, it's kind of the reverse of Shred, where, you know, it's just as important to deal additional wounds. It's just as important to save those same wounds. So I might be dishing out more wounds. You could just as easily save them. Yeah. Yeah, so that definitely helps a lot. Um, and as for something that hasn't been working for me, this is going a little outside of the game strategy and more into the meta. This rule book has been absolutely killing me. Every time I try to use it. So an example is when we started the segment, I was like, oh, maybe I should talk about the rage rule that I get for one of my rights of war. So I turned to the page and it's like, okay, you take this right of war, you get rage two. Awesome. What does that do? Well, there's no index in the Libra Hereticus, so I don't know where that is. The main rule book has an index. It does not list rage two. So I basically spent all of Warwick's and Brandon's segments looking for the rage. It took me literally 15 minutes to find this rule, and I found it here on page 245 of the main rule book. <laughs> and it, it feels like a lot of this game has been that. Um, I, ever, I'm sure a lot of people remember back a couple of these hobby sessions ago, I was having my rant about Deep Strike and how bad it was. 
So I've looked into it since then. And what it turns out is because the deep strike rule is scattered across the two rule books and six different entries, I didn't read the deep strike rules properly. I missed a couple sections. So we actually played it wrong. Those two games that we actually tried deep strike. Um, so we'll have to revisit that at some other point, but it's been a lot like that with this game. I've just been having a, an interesting time tracking down all the little nitty gritty of each unit. Yeah. I think that just having a section on figuring out how the rule book is set up and how it interacts with the, with the other end, with the index books, what are they called? Inde- what am I calling them? The, the index of start is books that, you Liebers. the Liebers, right? Sorry, the Liebers. I I've done the exact same thing that Paul did, where I'm looking for a rule, but you've got the main rule book keywords, you've got the um, Astartes war gear, you've got the Astartes special rules, you've got your individual codex special special rules. I mean, it's 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 Byzantine is the word for it. You got to and you already have to know it where to look. So. I did post in one of our chats a, a cheat sheet that I found pretty good. So take a look at that. Maybe that'll help. But man, it, it's a lot to keep track of. To kind of be on the other side of that coin, I, I first off, I totally get that frustration that happens to me all the time um, as well. Of flip, you know, it's, it's old hammer, right? Where you get together and you spend two hours playing and the other six hours was flipping through rule books. Um, that's just part of the fun. Anyway, um, one of the things that I like that, you know, heresy gets back to that, you know, kind of went away in, in 40 K and in Sigmar, I, I assume that old world was like this as well. But what I like is that everybody's on the same spec rule set. You know, if, you know, let's say if I have a unit that has rage and I know what it does and you're like, Oh, I can't remember what rage does. I can tell you that. Now, it's not going to mitigate. We are still going to spend a bunch of time flipping through rules. But it also helps that when you say, you set this unit down and you say, okay, it's got Rage 2. Well, I can know what that is. Whereas in, you know, the mainline games, now, the way they're set up, we have to spend an hour before each game explaining what each individual unit does. Or else there's going to be the bad feelings of, I didn't know you could do that. That's crazy. Right, and every army has a different version of the same rule. So it's just obsec. It's obsec, but they call it 16 different things. It's it's really frustrating. Yeah, so I guess my... It's a long way of me saying you got to take the good with the bad, I guess. Um, a cheat sheet would be good. I will take a look at the one that Manifold posted later. Yeah, that's definitely going to be interesting to me. I've yeah. noticed that a lot of the games I've lost um, so far have been specifically because I didn't know about a rule. Like, for example, I've lost a lot of units to flamers that I should not have because heavy units get to reroll their saves. I didn't know that because it's not under, like, the unit thing. It's not under flamers. It's in the main rulebook under the heavy unit type. And I hadn't read that. <laughs> I'm going to push back on that a bit. I think that you've lost most of your games because your opponent's been ta- just tactical genius. Yeah. Well, you know, it doesn't hurt when we play, you know, the wrong rules for deep strike and I put myself right in front of your flamer units, but sure. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for sharing, everybody. This is a fun segment. I definitely think we need to, to add this back in again. But now I want to talk about really, really old junk. 
which means I'm going to go to our old stuff expert, Manipole. What do you have for us today when we plunder the vault? Well, guys, do you like massive war machines with world-killing firepower? I like my, my spaceships. I love Titanicus. Well, hold oh, on. I also hold on. love no, Titanicus. Don't, <laughs> don't jump ahead. Do you like to be able to give orders to your units, and then if they fail a command check, the fog of war takes over, and you're not quite sure what's going to happen next? Yes, I really do love Titanicus. Yeah, Titanicus is great for me, too. <laughs> do you like the feel of putting together you know, battle groups that work together with amazing synergy? Manipul. We all yeah, love look, you've Titanicus. You already sold Steven. us on Titanicus. It's great. Do you like complex tables that rely on knowing how far and how fast away the size of your target is and what side of the board he's on with also left and right shifts because of intervening cover? Well, say no more because we are going to play with Battlefleet Gothic. Great game. Great game. I was going to no. say the last addendum that that is, do you like measuring in the metric system? Because oh, this yeah. is all oh. in centimeters. And that's you the part where we me. all go, you lost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? So close. <laughs> all right. So Battlefleet Gothic is all about Abaddon's 13th Black Crusade. So we're a little far ahead of the of the 30th, uh, uh, 30K universe however a lot of the ships that are present in battlefleet gothic were laid down in the 30th millennium and some of them even fought in the horus heresy a lot of the ship models were there and it with just a little bit of conversion you could take the battlefleet gothic rules and per- be perfectly fine in running them in games of uh, well linked games of 30k in fact there are rules for the terminus est which is everybody's favorite um, battleship now, this game, when it came out, by the time I got into it, you were not able to buy the box set. I got in a little bit late. You couldn't find it anywhere. So I downloaded a copy of the rules from the internet, and I found all of the other things that they'd released over the years. I collected all the white dwarfs that have the special rules in it, and then I bought the ships and a set of tokens online. And I think at that time, on the GW main webpage, this would be back in about 06, they were still selling the plastic kits for the ships. Everything else came for the, for the for the mainline ships. The big battleships were in metal, and the small escort ships were in metal. But the basic plastic kits were really fun to put together. Great functionality and and um, uh, compatibility with with little things. Uh, Paul, maybe you want to talk about that. What were the models like? I mean, we'll just we'll just start there. What did you think of the models? Yeah, the models were pretty good. Uh, the plastics were actually pretty easy to deal with. The uh, pewter, on the other hand, uh, I mean, anybody who remembers the pewter from back in those days, they were solid bricks. Like if you got the largest like ship classes, those things weighed like a solid pound in your hand. You could really break a window with one of those things if you wanted to. They look great. Um, but yeah, the pewter was a little rough. Yeah. And the, they, they came with a f- old plastic flying bases. I remember, I think even on the, um, the, the big apocalypse battleship that I got, I took that plastic bit out and replaced it with a bit of a coat hanger wire because the ship was so heavy. I think it broke the, the, the plastic flying base. 
But you start with the, the ships, and as I recall, they're about, I didn't bring any with me here, but they're about um, anywhere from one inch to about four or five inches long. When you play on the boards, the you're only actually measuring from the center stem of the flying base, though, because the scale of battle is so large, it's, your ship would only be a pinprick on the battlefield. So you're measuring from the flying base stem, not the model itself, because they're trying to to extrapolate the vast range of all the weaponry that they're bringing to bear on this. In order to play the game, you need um, anywhere from probably three to 10 ships. Depends if you're running a lot of small escorts, if you're fitting in a battle barge or something bigger in there. There's a lot of flexibility. I think as the meta played out, it had really kind of devolved into guys bringing a lot of carriers where they're shooting a lot of bomber waves and the medium ships, the small ships were too soft and the big ships were too expensive. So everybody's just running a lot of fighter wings. And I, I, there was a White Dwarf article at the end of the run that talked about how they were going to kind of nerf the fighter wings a little bit. But uh, I don't know how far they got on that process. The rules I'm going off of is an online community called the uh, that runs the BFGXR the BFG Expanded Rules uh, online community. So give them a look. Um, BF, let's see, where is it? On specialistarms.com. And they have the whole rule set there that these guys are working on. And it looks great. They've got a lot of great information there. But if you can find an old rule book, sure, it's, it still works. It's fine. You put together a small fleet. The ships are available. I, I, I see them on eBay all the time. And there are STL files out there if you want to uh, print something. There are other games that that got into the the uh, large ship combat game, Firestorm Armada. If you played anything like that, was a good game. I think so. Yeah, that was a, a neat game. But I think didn't that company get bought out a couple years ago? I think Possible. that was Spartan Games. Yeah, I think there might be limbo currently, but I I, I know the the ships are still out there. I, I still see them around all the time as well. Your ship has uh, four fire arcs. They go to um, port, starboard, prow, and well, backwards, whatever's behind you. And you have a little token that you put on top of the ship to show where the fire arc is. That would be the stern. The stern. Sir. They call it. If we're gonna yeah. get, if we're gonna get nautical yeah. here, do it right. Yeah. Stern. Wouldn't it Sorry. also be aft? I'll I'll see how they use it in the in the game here, but yeah, front, back, left, and right, and. The, the ships then, they, they will move, but we'll get to movement here in a little bit. But each ship comes with its own data card, and it has what weaponry it has, its movement, and its uh, firepower, its speed, how many shields it has, its armor rating, if it has any turrets or not, and its leadership value. The leadership value is important because, you, like in Titanicus, you do have special orders that you give. So you take your first ship, make a leadership test, give the special order. If he passes it, you go on to the next ship and on down the line. And they're they're similar to, to Titanicus because you can get extra movement. You can turn a little bit better. You can slow down. You can get a lock on an enemy. You can reload your ordnance batteries if you need to. And there's an emergency one where if you're getting shot at, you can brace for impact. So those orders function a lot like they do in Titanicus. And getting those figured out is, is important. You can 
Get a negative to your leadership value if you're under fire, if you have a blast marker next to you. Or also, if you are in special orders, you can get a plus one uh, to to uh, your leadership value. Now, like a lot of games, you set up the terrain, you set up the battlefield, you need a, a kind of a starscape, maybe put up uh, some ships as as uh, maybe a convoy going through the area. Maybe you've got a, a space station or a moon, you know, who knows what you're fighting around, but all that stuff is just like you'd set up a, a regular 30K game. And then you roll for initiative. So once you have initiative, you just roll a D6 and whoever rolls the highest, they have, they have initiative. When you go to movement, your ships move a little bit ponderously. There's a huge ships and depending on their size, they might have to move forward a little bit before they can make their turn. So uh, for instance, uh, some of the bigger ships need to move 10 centimeters before they can make a single turn. Uh, even bigger ships, 15 centimeters. And then depending on their agility, some of them can move, make more or tighter turns than others. Your little escort ships, no problem. Big ships, you're limited to 45 degrees. The movement phase in this game is where the game is won or lost, I think. Would you agree with that, Paul? Yeah, definitely. I, for anybody that's not familiar with uh, Battlefleet Gothic, but is familiar with any sort of Age of Sail or any sort of sailing game, it's very similar. Stuff like Cruel Seas and that kind of thing. Yeah, positioning is far more important than firepower, generally. And the game really rewards you if you know where, if you can guess where the opponent is going to be next round. If you can anticipate those movements and get yourself in the right place. Also, keeping your line in order. They're called ships of the line for a reason. They've got to support one another. And they have to move together, flank together, come back around together. and don't Because as soon as one ship gets out of line, he's gone. So you got to be very careful about getting your, your flanks exposed in this game. Especially with the Imperial ships, because they've got the armored prow. The cast ships have a little more flexibility with that, a little more speed. But because the Imperial ships have an armored prow, they want to be always facing the, the enemy as best they can. And then coming around for a nice broadside, if they can get it, and then back into line. So during the shooting phase, then, this is the only part, I was making the joke about the table, where it gets a little bit janky. You've got different kinds of weapons. You've got lances. And the lances don't really care so much about um, the movement of the ship or where it's at or where it's been. They just do direct fire. And if the lance hits, it cuts through the armor because it's a super high-powered laser that doesn't really care about anything else. Otherwise, you have what are called batteries. Your batteries are all kinds of different plasma projectors, laser cannons, missile launchers, rail guns, fusion beamers, and graviton pulsers, whatever they might be. They're just called battery weapons. And your ship will generate a value anywhere from 1 to 20, sometimes even more. Uh, but but you, you have a pool of dice. That pool is reduced by the how far away or... Sorry, let me, let me take, this, take this back. The size of the enemy ship. So is he easy to hit because he's big? Yeah, you get, you're going to get more dice. Is he moving away? Is he a beam? Is he closing? If those things, you, so you have this chart you referenced to decide, well, okay, well, how many dice of that pool do I actually get to roll? So if you have, for instance, 
20 firepower. You're shooting a capital ship who's closing on you. Then you get 14 of those dice. So pretty good. And now if that same capital ship is moving away from you, you're only going to get 10 dice. And if he is a beam, that's only going to be seven dice. So depending on the facing of the other ship and where you're in relation to him, you have to look at the chart to see how many dice you get to roll. Against those successes, then the enemy gets shield rolls. If any gets through, then you start causing damage and whittling down their their whole points. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, like I said, it it's I think this does call back to Games Workshop's original sort of origins as a historical wargaming sort of center. It it really pulls a lot of the same feel as those naval age of sail games. I can see why it was kind of put on the back burner though. Well, maybe discontinued. I don't know if we'll ever see it again or a modern rule set anyway, but like with all the chart referencing, I know that that really slows down a game. So for modern 40 K to be in favor in this more, like you got to go back and check the chart every time. uh, I I can see why it's fallen out of favor compared to the modern product. To be fair, it is just one chart. It's the only chart in the, in the, in, in the game. And when I played it before, once you get a few games in, you know very quickly that you've got to always be in a certain position to get your best dice. So you look at it and say, here's my number. Here's where he's moving to. Okay, that's my number. And it, it is just one chart. At the very, at, at least there's that. Yeah, this is uh, bringing me back to our Age of Sail games, which means I'm sure I'm going to get traumatized when we decide to play some Battlefleet Gothic and Paul shows up with the Vice Admiral Collingwood. Hey, don't bring frigates to a third-rate fight. It's not going to work for you. I'm America. We only have frigates. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can also see how Battlefleet Gothic is very similar to something like Battletech, where uh, you, you know your facing is incredibly important. You're going to have modifiers at certain ranges and facings. That's that's pretty interesting to me as well. And I know. Um, my my roommate is a huge BattleTech fan, and he's always talking about how like yeah we went um, like six hours and three rounds. I was like yeah that sounds like BattleTech. That is some crazy shit. You can play that game forever and hardly get anything done. So those are the basic weapons, but they do have rules for the, like something like the Nova Cannon. The Nova Cannon is a devastatingly powerful weapon, but it it has a scattered ice to it. So it's like your big artillery piece. You have an idea of where it's going to land, but you're not sure. And the ship you're shooting at might not be there when it lands. So you've got to be thinking about this. I always thought of the Nova Cannon shot as more of a a block, piece of blocking terrain you could put on the battlefield that the enemy had just had to be aware of. And if you got the occasional direct hit, that was great. But I never counted on it. Likewise, there are rules for torpedoes. Once the torpedoes come off the front of your ship, they will continue to go in a straight line. Um, even if your ship turns away or the other ships try to avoid them. So you'd use those kind of like a shepherd, like a shepherd where you are going to close off one area of the battlefield where you know he's not going to be to make him turn so you can get that sweet shot with your with your lances. And typically when I was shooting, I would try to do all of my weapon battery fire first to strip shields and then hit him with a lance uh, at the end of that, just like we might do with uh, Titanicus. So then, of course, ships can be damaged, take critical hits, become crippled. They can blow up and all that. But one of the really interesting mechanics the game has are these blast markers. Whenever you score a hit on an enemy ship, 
it creates these blast markers that represent areas of of distorted space and debris and all these sorts of things that come out that will affect your ship's ability to function, which means it slows them down when you're in contact with them, and also your ability to target through those clouds. So if you if your shot goes through in these clouds, it counts as cover. But as we'll see later at the end of the game, a random number of those blast markers is removed at the end of, of every turn. So you can kind of, again, you can create terrain to change the battlefield as you're going through with, with what you decide to shoot at. So if you can figure out the, the movement game, the torpedo game, and all that, you're like, okay, I've got this all figured out. But the problem is that the, the, the ships also have fighter craft. So you can unleash a wave of fighter craft to go knock out those torpedoes or a wave of incoming bombers. Likewise, you can send bombers out to the enemy ship to cause significant damage because they get through the shields. It's kind of like having your little knights that are running up underneath the Titanicus, the Titans, shooting at them from within their shields, and they have a chance of doing some good damage. Does all that kind of ring a bell, Paul? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember it was kind of like you were saying. it. The end game meta did sort of gravitate towards those bombers. They did significant damage for a pretty low points cost, and they were pretty low risk to run, so... The big capital ships were fun, um, but yeah, bombers and fighters were kind of the meta. Yeah, because your your great big ship could just get torn apart by a couple waves of bombers, and that was the end of the game. Yeah. So the so the, the, the so then at the end of the phase, then you just look at your damage control phase, and you remove some a random number of the blast markers on the board. Then you then you start the turn over again. Uh, so that is only about 30 pages of rules. Super simple game. It's one of the, 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 I think this is where GW is at its best, where it's got this, just a simple, clean little rule system and it leaves it up to the player to get good at it. So easy to learn, hard to master. That's the game I'm always looking for. And then if you guys have any questions, I'll take them and then we can move on to the advanced rules section. Yeah, that was something I really liked about this era of the game. It's, the base rules are 30 pages. The Imperium and Space Marine, like Army List, is 30 pages. And they have a two-page reference sheet that's actually, like, really good and usable. Um, it was just really condensed, simple to learn. It was a lot of fun. Um, we're getting long on time, so we might have to do the advanced rules on another episode. Um, I'll just do it just really, really quick. Basically, what they're going to run into then is just... Advanced rules for the battlefield and how you might use different kinds of terrain fighting within the gravity well. Then they go into uh, a whole course of scenarios. And then the rest of the book is just your army lists where you can play Chaos, Imperial, Eldar, Orc. They had room for uh, rules for Tau, Inquisition, the Demiurge, and even uh, Tyranids and Necrons. So they had uh, quite, as the game was going through, we were all hopeful that. They would continue to make more rules for more stuff, but we didn't quite get there. But all in all, I think a wonderful uh, game and super easy to recreate any of the fleet actions you read about in the Horus Heresy books. Just get a few ships online, print them, and get some games in. I think you'll really enjoy it. Here's my question then, Manipal. I'm Let's say I'm, I'm interested in the game. Um, we've talked about where to get the rules at. What ships, let's say I want to play the Imperium. 
just to get a baseline kind of game in, what ships should I be printing? Okay, so I, as I recall, the last set of uh, battles I was playing was with a lot of the just the basic Imperium vessels. Uh, it'd be fun to have a battleship so you can get your um, Imperial Apocalypse class battleship, which is a good solid one. But then your ships of the line, line are going to be your cru- your um, cruisers. The Grand Cruisers, yeah. The Grand Cruisers and the Battle Cruisers. So uh, if you can find a, a Lunar Class Battle Cruiser or Lunar, cl- lunar Class Cruiser, that's going to give a lot of your, your, your mid-weight um, bulk of your army. You can print a few escort ships, but those are always going to be fun to play. Yeah. Um, and if you're doing Space Marines, it's even easier. It's You get a Battle Barge. And that's basically all you need. But you can fill out the rest of your points with strike cruisers and other things for fun. But the battle barge for Space Marines is going to do you all all the yeah. work you need. Not a lot of diversity there, but yeah. the battle barge is, is pretty key to all of it. But now remember that in 30k, the Space Marines were running off of what well, we would determine a regular Imperial type ship. The battle, the, the battle barges were later. So in the the BFG XR rulebook, they have rules for taking any other ship of a battle fleet, a battleship class and turning it into a space Marine command vessel. So you, you might take one of those Imperial uh, apocalypse class battleships and make it your, the, the home of your uh, space Marine fleet. Now I assume that there's, there's the same points breakdown of like you take this hull and then you outfit it with different gear, like different weapons or uh, how does the point um, system work? Not quite in the, in the rule book that we have here, they list the ship and it comes just as is. Like if, if you get a, let me pull one up here. If I can find a quick one. Yeah. So what they do instead of giving you options is they give you, different options for the same class of ship. So there's like four grand cruisers that have roughly the same point cost. They just come with different armament loadouts. So it's almost like you buy a Lehman Russ and it has like, you know, the annihilator pattern, the demolisher pattern, and you just pick one and it comes preset with its equipment. All right. Last question I've got here for you. Can I take a Gloriana class? Oh yeah, definitely. I think you might take a little tweaking, but with this these variant rules we have here, it'd be no problem to give it a little bit of extra oomph, and now you've got one. Yeah, I remember back when I played, there's no official rules for it, but we had a like fan-made one that I can't remember who found it, but like one guy kit-bashed a Gloriana, and we played with it. It was a lot of fun. In that case, I think uh, in the very near future... Watch the skies for the invincible reason. <laughs> All right. Oh, I was sure that you would print the phalanx. It's like your favorite ship. <laughs> All right, you're you're fired from the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. a co-founder. You can't fire me, you dick. Okay, pull so some legal mumbo jumbo to push you out. So, for instance, I, I did finally find the army list here. So, for instance, this lunar class cruiser I was talking about is 180 points. So, if you're running like five of those. That is, and, and if you support ships, that is your uh, thousand point list. So, for instance, if then if you're running like that was 180, if you're going to play the the large battleship, the let's see, let's see, Oberon, the Apocalypse class, 365. So a little more than double the cost of a cruiser. 
And there you go. That's just that easy. Uh, just for reference, the most expensive thing, if I remember right, is the Star Fort uh, at eight seventy five. So you can run the Phalanx. <laughs> yeah, you have rules for the Star Fort, and you have rules for the uh, Blackstone yeah, the Fortress. Blackstone well, Fortress, yeah, and the Planet Killer. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Th- well, thanks for that breakdown, Manipal, and uh, it's really interesting to hear about this. I've always been interested in the the spaceship game, but uh, I have not been able to actually look into it very much. Yeah, so I'd say if you guys are ever on eBay and see a, a cheap little Battlefleet Gothic army for sale, just pick it up, get five models, and you can play some games. It's well worth the, well worth your investment on at that level. Awesome. Well, thanks for running us through that, Manipal and Paul. Uh, sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, we'll have to try it out sometime. Uh, you sent over a lot of those. Looks like there's a lot of files for for printing out those ships, so I'm sure we can get something going if we want to. Yeah, I mean, the official ones have been out of print now for over a decade, so you're going to have to go third-party or 3D print if you want any of these ships, unless you get real lucky on eBay. For sure, for sure. Um, well, I think we can go ahead and wrap it up here. Uh, Warwick, you want to plug our socials and then talk about the next book? Yeah, shoot us an email at legioncast18 at gmail.com and look us up on Twitter at legioncast, a Horus Heresy podcast. We love hearing from the fans. And uh, the next book will be Mechanicum. And Brandon has a, a special guest on the line for that one. So to definitely tune in to see who that is. I, I hope we all enjoy it. I'm looking forward to that book. It's a banger. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for coming by. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Yep. Thanks again. Yep. Thanks for stopping by, everybody. And remember to march in fortune. Mm-hmm.